0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, The Time Has Come. It's for Martin Luther King Day 2009 and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January twenty fifth, 2009. Because of tornado warnings and torrential rains the night of April 3rd, 1968, only 2,000 people rallied at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, to support Martin Luther King, Jr. in the strike planned by the city's sanitation workers. Three weeks earlier, in fact, King had spoken to 14,000 supporters in the same cavernous venue. Despite asking Ralph Abernathy to speak in his place, at about 9:30 p.m. King addressed the faithful few. In an eerie evocation of his past that foreboded his future, King reminisced how he had nearly died way back in 1958 when a deranged woman stabbed him in a Harlem bookstore. He then related how on his flight from Atlanta to Memphis that morning, a bomb scare caused the pilot to announce to the passengers that a threat to King's life necessitated a special guard on board. And then King continued as follows. And then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats, or talk about threats, that were out. What would happen to me from some of our white sick brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now because I have been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. At 6.01 p.m. the next day, escaped convict James Earl Ray assassinated Martin Luther King on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. He was 39 years old. Riots in more than 60 cities around America ensued. On April 8th, more than 300,000 people attended his funeral. Part of Martin Luther King's many-faceted genius was his recognition of the difference between chronos, mere clock time, the passage of days, weeks, and years, whether short or long, whether trivial or important, in kairos, that unique or opportune moment of God's visitation. Longevity, length of days, is a pale imitation and a sad substitute for a decisive choice at a critical moment, even if the time is short. In the Gospel this week, Mark begins his story of Jesus with a stunning announcement. We read, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. In Mark's account, these are the very first words spoken by Jesus. And what exactly was this good news of God that he announced? We read, The Kairos has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The Greek word kairos denotes a critical juncture, a divine appointment or intervention, in contrast to prosaic chronos, or everyday clock time. You might yawn, for example, at chronos, or forget whether it's Wednesday or Thursday. But kairos provokes a radical response, an urgent choice, or a fundamental reorientation. In announcing the good news of God, Jesus identified the coming of God's reign with his own person, which is why he then invited Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, Come, follow me. The Gospel of Mark is unambiguous about their unequivocal response. We read, At once they left their nets and followed him. And if that didn't sufficiently punctuate his point, Mark then adds that quote, when they got a little when they had gone a little farther, Jesus called a second set of brothers, James and John, who were at work in their boats. They too left everything at once to follow Jesus, their father, the hired help, the boat, and their nets. Jesus proclaimed that God's Kairos has come, and his kingdom is near repent and believe. In this week's epistle, written about 30 years after Jesus, Paul used remarkably similar language in his letter to believers at Corinth. Paul writes, the kairos is short. This world in its present form is passing away. It's not clear what Paul meant when he said that the time has been shortened. Maybe that death was imminent for him. Or maybe he believed that Jesus was to return soon. Or thirdly, that he was alluding to specific matters at Corinth that are now lost to us. (laughs) Whatever Paul meant, there's no ambiguity in the response that he urged due to the crisis of the Kairos. He cautioned against any postponement Entanglements or distractions. He eliminated any middle ground and called for an either or decision. The married, the mourning, the exuberant, the buyers and sellers should all live as if the normal canons of Kronos did not adhere. The fulfillment and foreshortening of God's kairos meant that one should no longer live life business as usual. The kairos of God's coming in Jesus should elicit a radical revolution in life's priorities. Throughout the Bible, marginal people connect with Jesus' urgent invitation. The religiously suspect, social outcasts, the economically poor, and the morally impure. Whereas on the other hand, the smug smug establishment types often miss it. They don't believe it or choose not to hear. In the Old Testament reading this week, the most improbable converts, the pagan Ninevites, understood the kairos of God. Much to Jonah's chagrin, these foreigners responded to his preaching, repented, and believed his message about Yahweh. December 1st, 1955 dawned like any ordinary day of Kronos, except that a seamstress and civil rights activist named Rosalie Parks sensed the moment of God's Kairos. After a long day of work at Montgomery Fair Department Store, she boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus and refused the driver's demand to relinquish her seat to a white passenger. Rosa Parks understood the fleeting nature of transient chronos and the limited opportunities we have to choose risk over regret and urgency over complacency. In her autobiography, she explained her motivation that December evening. I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was only 42. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. Her solitary act provoked the Montgomery bus boycott and propelled a 26-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. into the forefront of the Civil Rights Movement. It became an iconic moment of kairos, in American history. The psalmist this week observed the leveling effect of chronos, mere clock time. That whether one is born a pauper or a prince, as Psalm 62 9 puts it, together they are only a breath. Like smoke that dissipates from a room. At some point in the not-too-distant future, your past, present, and future their duration or passage of chronos you have enjoyed will come to an abrupt end. Until then, following in the footsteps of Martin Luther King and Rosalie Parks, God's kairos invites us to seize the opportune moment, the appointed time to enter his kingdom. And for further reflections, What might the invitation of Jesus or the urgency of Paul mean for you? When have you experienced moments of kairos that interrupted kronos? What in your mind are the major contributions of King and Parks? And finally, consider a challenge once put to me by my pastor. Risk something big for something good. For books this week, we have a guest book review. The title of the book, Introducing the Theological Interpretation of Scripture, Recovering a Christian Practice. The author is Daniel Trier, Grand Rapids Baker Academic Two thousand and eight the book review was written by David Bushhart, Professor of Theology and Historical Studies of Denver Theological Seminary. One of the continuities of the Christian Church across the ages is the fact that it reads and seeks to understand its scriptures, the Bible, amidst this continuity, there is of course a great deal. Of diversity. There's diversity across the traditions of Christianity. At the macro level there's diversity in the way each of the three major traditions of Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism, each approach the Bible. And this diversity is further compounded among the many sub-traditions within each of these three. Protestantism, of course, undoubtedly manifesting the greatest diversity. There's diversity across cultures, as Christians in different cultural settings inevitably read the Bible from within and with reference to that setting. There's diversity across the ages, when Christians in different historical periods read the scriptures in and usually in terms of the period in which they live. This being the case, those of us who are not specialists in the interpretation of the Bible can be thankful when scholars who are specialists write a well-informed distillation and assessment of some contemporary addition to the seemingly ever-increasing diversity of proposals for reading Christian scripture. Daniel Trier, professor of theology at Wheaton College in Illinois, offers just such a summary in his book, Introducing Theological Interpretation, of Scripture. The so-called theological interpretation of Scripture seeks, in the author's words, to reverse the dominance of historical criticism over churchly reading of the Bible and to redefine the role of hermeneutics in theology. Several elements of this description are noteworthy. First the theological interpretation of Scripture seeks to overcome the almost exclusive dominance of modern, or over-premodern, principles and practices. So, at one level, this views the historical diversity referred to in the opening paragraph above as a resource rather than only as outdated habits to overcome. Second, in looking back to earlier errors for potential inspiration and guidance, Theological interpretation of scripture seeks to restore the church to its rightful role in interpreting the Bible. And this churchly mindset is not only a rationale for learning from the past, it's also a principle which should inform reading, by reading the Bible in the present. Third, in the contemporary context of specialization among scholars of all di- disciplines, The theological interpretation of Scripture wrestles with the relationship between responsible and competent interpretation of the Bible on the one hand, and biblical and thoughtful theology on the other. In the interest of full disclosure, it should be noted that the author comes to the theological interpretation of Scripture primarily from his vocation as a theologian. However, Trier is well informed with regard to biblical studies. In this book, Along with work by others in the theological interpretation of Scripture, is a constructive contribution to encourage more conversation between the disciplines of biblical studies and theology. For my own part, I am thankful for the emergence of the theological interpretation of Scripture because of its readiness to overcome the tyranny of the present and to look to the past, including the ancient Christian past. For wisdom in reading the Bible, and its desire to locate the reading of the Bible where it properly, properly belongs in the church. Trier's book may be more detailed and technical than some readers might want. For those, however, who are interested in staying current with contemporary approaches to interpreting the Bible, this book provides a substantive yet modest introduction in 200 pages to an increasingly important approach. The title of the book, Introducing the Theological Interpretation of Scripture, by Daniel J. Trier. The book review is by David Bushart of Denver Seminary. <clears throat> For film this week, I review Encounters at the End of the World, 2018. Werner Herzog wrote, directed, and narrated this latest installment of his cinematic career that has had as its focus the exploration of extreme geographic places and the people who inhabit them. Nature is his stage, but human nature is his plot. When the National Science Foundation invited Herzog to the South Pole, you knew he would not disappoint with another film about cute penguins. The trip begins with a 2,000-mile flight from New Zealand to McMurdo Station, where a 1,000 people endure harsh weather, ice that can be 9,000 feet thick, in five months of summer when there is no night. The scientific station looks and feels like a rundown mining town. After emergency preparedness training, Herzog is off and running. We meet a banker, for example, who has turned bus driver, a forklift driver who was a philosopher, a glaciologist, biologists, and volcanologists atop 12,000-foot Mount Erebus, an active volcano. They are all, quote-unquote, professional dreamers of one sort or another, and they live literally and figuratively, as one person put it, off the margin of the map. As in many of his films, the collision between technological society, the natural environment, and the survivability of humanity looms large for Werner Herzog. Encounters At the end of the world, and finally for Martin Luther King Day, we've posted a poem by Walter Brueggemann. The title of the poem is simply Martin Luther King Jr. Some of us are old enough to remember the balcony in Memphis, the sanitation workers' strike the shot that broke flesh, the loss of Martin, and then the mule-drawn wagon and the funeral and the riots, the violence, the fear, and the failure. All of us know the crowd in D.C., and I have a dream, the Birmingham jail, the broad stream of violence, and his steadfast nonviolence in Albany and in Skokie and in Selma. All of us know his awesome daring speech, his bravery, his hope, and his generative word. And we know the relentlessness of our government in pursuit of him, and the endless surveillance and harassment of this drum major for justice. At this distance, we have little access to how it was then concerning ambiguity in fear and reluctance and violence and injustice. We do not doubt that you have persisted even beyond Martin's passion, even beyond Martin's brilliance, even beyond Martin's fidelity and his loss. We do not doubt that through him and beyond him you, holy God of the prophets, are still pledged to justice and peace and liberty for all. We remember Martin in gratitude and in chagrin, and we pledge amid our stressed ambiguities to dream as he did, to walk the walk, and to talk the talk of your coming kingdom. We pledge so sure that your truth will not stop its march until your will is done on heaven as it is on earth as it is in heaven. Walter Brueggemann, a poem entitled Martin Luther King. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 25th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.